Natural Podcast. We bring awareness of sustainable health in the business hustle space. Natural Podcast is perfect for the high-performing business-minded individuals who want to work with their biochemistry to achieve success and optimal health. It's Friday, which means it's time for French Chain Facts about health, business, and overall success. In today's episode, we talk to Daniel Abella. Daniel Abella graduated from Columbia University for a degree in biophysics and has worked in the fields of biotechnology, finance, and information technology. He's the author of How I Built a Cobalt Bomb from Scratch, which demonstrated that declassified information is available to anyone who wants to build a radioactive bomb. His findings were later corroborated by Hans Bethen, a Nobel Prize-winning physician who worked on the Manhattan Project in the 90s. Daniela worked on Wall Street building financial trading models, but after many of his friends returned home from military service with PTSD, he became determined to find effective treatments for them. Daniel soon trained with Richard Bandler, who co-developed the neurolytics programming, NLP, and received additional training in somatic therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy. Using the best from each of these healing modalities, Daniel developed a groundbreaking new treatment for PTSD, phobia, and trauma. And since 1994, has helped thousands of veterans, first responders, and the general public to recover from these self-distressing conditions. He has spoken at key conferences and regularly conducts workshops throughout New York, London, and Colgan. He has all he also founded the Philip K. Dick Science Fiction Film Festival in 2012, Psychedelic Film and Music Festival in 2018, and in 2020 opened Lux Atrenium, a company dedicated to providing cultural healing vehicle and workshops on the theater of the mind. Some interesting facts about him is that he has created several indie films events, including the ones I just mentioned, and also he has an interest in the night's Templar. I want to find out what that is. Welcome to the Natural Hub Podcast, Daniel. Tell us a little bit more about that. <laughs> oh, thank you, Mihaela. Um, well, the Knights Templar, we go there, okay. Um, well, the Knights Templar uh, were a monastic order that came about around uh, the second, uh, 12th century, and they were essentially were um, authorized to help the pilgrims on, uh, on their journey to the Holy Land. Um, during 200 years, they became very wealthy. They also were warriors and uh, engaged in a variety of practices. And they were well known for essentially creating the letter of credit. But at the same time, in several battles, they were, they were key in helping fight off the invading armies, which generally came from Turkey and other neighboring countries. So I always felt that there was something really special, unique about the Knights Templar, uh, besides the esoteric uh, practices and so on, that uh, appealed to me. I think that it, it's almost like a complete human being in terms of what they can do. Not only are they a man of action, but they're also religious and they're devotional and they and they kind of take the world, they understand there's a higher reality behind, besides the world we live in. So there, here we are, being to various Knights Templar places around the world. So uh, it's something that I'm actually thinking of writing a book about real soon. Yeah, wow, that sounds so interesting. Let me know when the book's out. I'll be definitely interested in it to find out Absolutely. a bit more. Well, Absolutely. Look, reading your bio, you've, you're a man who's been through a lot and done a lot. <laughs> so what, 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 what has got you to, to be here where you are right now? Well, you know, I started uh, with a background in physics uh, since I was in high school, and I studied physics the first couple of years of college. Um and then I kind of became more interested at that time in the, the work uh, in the works of Sigmund Freud, uh, Carl Jung, uh, Alfred Adler, and other uh, therapists. And um, very much intrigued by the workings of the mind and how certain conditions came about. 
Um, I did graduate with a degree in, in, in biophysics, and I went on to uh, apply that in a couple of ventures. One of them was in um, at a nascent biotech company in uh, South San Francisco, and then following that at a hospital. But after a year and a half, I became very dissatisfied because it basically, despite the fact that the role was being billed as a, a research assistant, very glamorous, it was actually a lab technician. I was there like mixing chemicals. And I think after one very unfortunate incident where I blew up <laughs> blew up a series of chemicals, I realized, hmm, perhaps this is not for me. So I decided <laughs> to come back to New York and I, I continued to work. Uh, and um, applied biophysics to uh, the creation of economic and financial models in Wall Street. Back then, that was the big thing. Um, and um, But after running into a few friends of mine who had been to war and uh, noticing that they uh, had some serious mental challenges, PTSD, anxiety, agitation, panic attacks, I became curious if there was an existing model to really deal with it. Because at that time, they were hooked on all kinds of medication, pharmaceuticals, and none of them seemed to really work very well. So I became very frustrated because there were, at that time, there was no one model, an economic, like a physics model or an economic model, that really, really would explain how these conditions come about. So I decided to uh, basically... That, that, that was almost like a calling for me. And I was thinking, this is really what, what, I, what I want to do. So I, I took a lot of training in NLP, uh, somatic therapy, body work, Feldenkrais, and it looked like the best of each one. For instance, NLP focuses very much on the mind and how the mind organizes images and ideas. Uh, Feldenkrais is more about body work and uh, somatic therapy is almost the body. So for, for me, too, I took what I felt was the best and I integrated into a system, which I call the theater of the mind protocols. And uh, now, this I've been doing seminars of this kind for quite some time. But um, over the pandemic, I, I realized that he, he would go again, except on a much larger scale. And uh, I decided to put into writing my 25 years of experience in this book. Uh, so he, here we are. Yeah, wow. That's absolutely amazing. And, um, you know, it's unfortunate that you saw your friends go through it. And uh, from what I'm understanding, you're the individual where you're like, I just want to know what is happening and I want to be able to do something about it. So it's so good that, you know, you are that type of person. So therefore we are here and you gained all that knowledge that you have from NLP, somatic, cognitive behavioral therapy, and you've come up with something. And that's what I'm excited to talk about today. And I bet you the audience is also, Ooh. because that's what they're here for. They're like, that either they have PTSD, they know someone that has PTSD, or they're seeing the trend and are realizing that loved ones around them are going to have it due to what's happened around the whole world. Like you said, it's at the moment, it's on a large scale. Like back in the days, not everyone goes to war. There's only a certain amount of people and not everyone of those gets PTSD, you know. But now this is huge. This is impacting everyone in the world, right? Absolutely. And um, the uh, I want to bring up a, a case of how I... I felt in order to explain what PTSD, how it works, I had to create an overarching framework, a, a kind of an explanation of how it works. Because a lot of us won't even try anything unless we know, well, tell me how it works, tell me why it works, right? Mm -hmm. So for quite some time, I was puzzling what is the best way to explain this framework? 
So I just have two spe very specific cases that I, I just dawned upon me. The first one was a movie back in 1977. Some of you might have seen it, Old Jaws. And uh, at that time, shortly after the movie premiered, many people were afraid of going into the water. They were afraid of sharks. And I said to myself, but just a movie. I can understand if they had an encounter with a shark, but this is just a movie. Huh, I thought. And then uh, I basically put that aside. Around 9-11, I, I, was, I was here in New York City when it happened, but I also read that hundreds of thousands of people had PTSD from just watching the footage, um, the continuous footage of the towers dropping. And then I started to put two and two together and realized perhaps there's a mechanism that kind of in the mind that kind of mimics what goes on when we watch movies. And if we understand that mechanism, we can then perhaps reverse engineer the process and find a way to unravel, to de decouple the emotional charge of a PTX experience from the memory. So I, um, that's when I started taking information from NLP and somatic therapy and Feldenkrais and put together what I feel is a framework that, uh, that is easy to learn and that has proven to be very effective uh, with those who have used it. I've used it personally. I, uh, I'll give you a couple of examples. I had this uh, client of mine who was afraid of going to the water. And uh, uh, over, I was doing a workshop. So I sat with her and over lunch, uh, we did a uh, process, which I, the specific process in, in question here, it's called the, it's called the VKD dissociation process. Visual kinesthetic dissociation process, and it's also it also goes under the term of the rewind therapy. But anyway, I sat down with her, and uh, I did this little process, fifty minutes, and I forgot all about it. She says, "Well, tell me how you feel afterwards." So a couple months back, I'm talking with her again. She's referring me to another client, and I say, "Oh, by the way, I'm, I, uh, that fear of me of going to the water is gone." So okay, it's in how interesting. And so here, here we are. Uh, I had an, a young woman who had lived and survived the Sarajevo bombing in the mid-90s. And I noticed there was something off with her because every time that I uh, an ambulance would wheeze by, because we live in New York City and it's always ambulances. You may even hear one, one from here. But she would get up and start acting out. So during lunch, I sat with her to tell me what's going on. I noticed that every time an ambulance passes by, you know, you get up and you run around and, and she's telling, she told me her stories. Well, we'll sit down and see what we can do about it. So I sat with her for about an hour. And so, and after the hour, it says, well, let's see. And then I noticed the rest of the afternoon, she was relatively quiet. So I always follow up with my clients, right? You know, you just may, it could have just been a one off, but it turned out that, uh, so her again, she came to one of, my workshops a month later and there she was and she acted pretty fairly no I'm not, she's not completely okay there's still a little you know i mean but at least she didn't get up and run out of the room so um i always tell people look when you do these processes don't expect that everything is going to fall back into its original state perfectly mm. but if it's, a, if it's a step in the right direction that gives them hope Gives them a sense of a possibility, which is really what I want to 
share this with your audience. It's not just about a one try, one time fix everything, I'll be okay. But no, you feel a little bit better. And then you keep it up, you keep it up. And then maybe after a few months or a few years, you're back to basically okay. You're, you know, so um, I always try to manage the expectations of my clients because some of them have a history of trauma. And you have a history of trauma and abuse, and then on top of that, you got PTSD, let's say, from the pandemic. Well, guess what? Now we got to go to the history of the trauma, like evident, um, incident by incident by incident. And that can be a little long, that take a while. However, every session makes a significant difference. Yeah, 100%. And it's interesting that you gave an example of the Sarajevo war, which is where my family is from and we are, are, came as refugees. Um, so I can definitely, uh, coming from that country, see the PTSD in the population um, from the 90s, from that war that happened in Yugoslavia and so forth. Um, absolutely crazy. But it's, it's so interesting with PTSD because every time someone thinks about PTSD, we think about war, right? Like what we said. Um, or, or, or an ambulance or the sirens or guns and things like that. But are you able to give us maybe just um, what what is post-traumatic traumatic stress disorder? Is it just people who, you know, have uh, uh, trauma from war? Is it is it wider? Uh, just to give us a little bit of an idea. Well, uh, post-traumatic PTSD is, is essentially the most advanced uh, gradient on our stress uh, the, how we handle stress. Uh, you have the normal chronic, you know, normal stress, which everybody goes through. You have an experience. It may, might, it might stress you out, but then the next day you forget about it. And then you got a more chronic kind of stress, which um, the person is, excuse me, let me see if I, I know, uh, I'm not sure this is going on, but uh, the chronic stress goes on, uh, it's more regular. Like the person, it's let's say a, a policeman, he's always you know he's always uh, or an ambulance uh, um, uh, person, and they're stressed, high cortisol levels, and they still manage to sleep at night. Then you got the 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 um, post traumatic stress, which is at this point the person is no longer able to even forget their memories. Any little thing that happens will trigger them getting back into the original. Uh, I had a friend, for instance. I remember very, very clearly. It's like, 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 like night, like day. One day, he, I remember watching an ambulance pass by, and he dropped to the floor. Like, I mean, like, oh, spread eagle. It's like in, in a second. So what happened here? And that was PTSD. I mean, he dropped. He didn't just kneel and then drop. So uh, PTSD is usually defined by the certain certain symptomology: hypervigilance, insomnia restlessness, tremors, blackouts, um, so on. There are different aspects of PTSD. There's also another type that is very, very rarely uh, explored, and that's hypoarousal, which the person is desensitized from everything. So they see someone get killed in front of them, they just have no emotion. Well, that's not a good thing. That is generally an indication of something very traumatic has happened, and the body's gone in the opposite direction. So uh, PTSD can happen to basically anyone. Um, and I want to make two, a distinction here between basic PTSD, it's a single incident, let's say someone happens to be at a 
be in a car crash uh, or, or and then every time they hear something or crash they freak out versus complex PTSD which is associated with a history of trauma and abuse and then you got comorbid PTSD so now the person is uh, has PTSD but is also alcoholic substance abuse that's even more complex so we're going from very simple to very complex but essentially uh, after watching reading reports of Pete on 9-11, the pandemic, and, and so on. People are susceptible. One out of every uh, last report, I remember uh, one out of every eight Americans will have PTSD sometime in their life. So it can be brought on by a variety of causes. Normally, something as simple as watching too much television, especially negative news. So when they tell you, hey guys, get off the news, they're right. You know, they're not just because they are, I'll, I'll, I'll sleep right. Well, guess what? You know, the sun feeling, oh, that's what's going on. Yeah, it's absolutely crazy. And I, and I guess from what you've explained to us, the different levels of PTSD, um, so if something happens to one individual, uh, let's say two people, the same thing happens to them, I guess one can get PTSD and the other one doesn't have to get it. Is that right? Well, you know, it, it has to do with their constitution. It's no one... Uh, a right or wrong way of preparing. Mm. Uh, I think some people are much more sensitive to um, uh, more kinesthetics. They're more sensitive to anything going on around them. But we uh, want to say sensitive isn't a bad thing. So no, no, none of these things are bad. <laughs> yeah. by, by, how, by how they organize experience in a day-to-day -day manner, I can pretty much tell they're going to get PTSD or not. Wow. I mean, uh, the let's say those who have worked with their hands that are soldiers are actually more likely to get PTSD than those who are, uh, let's say, uh, vis highly visual people. Because the way PTSD works, it's almost like you're watching a movie and then the movie doesn't keep running like a loop inside your mind. Now, the mechanisms of PTSD is this. Anytime information goes through your, our sensory system, it by especially it goes first to our um, our, uh, our limbic and reptilian brains before it gets processed by the, the our cortical brains. So you have a section called the amygdala, uh, and the amygdala is basically the sensor that uh, dangerous or, or safe, dangerous or safe, dangerous or safe, and then if it's safe. And that information gets passed on to the hippocampus, which is another section of the brain, of the midbrain. What happens with PTSD is that the charge, imagine you're getting 400 volts in a 120. It blows the circuit. It's just, now you can't, you gotta go back to the circuit breaker, reset it. Uh, because every time now, it's not gonna, and that's what happens with PTSD. It's literally like you're short-circuiting the amygdala. Uh, for for a temporary amount of time, it, it makes that it's over, has a huge charge, which is unable to process to the hippocampus. The charge is in the form of a powerful memory, which is just just has too much, uh, and um, it, the way it's usually processed, it cannot. It stays there. So any trigger that comes along, and, and whether it be a sound, a bomb, or anything, or even just a, some, a pair of keys dropping to the floor can trigger the person to re recall that same memory. It's almost like they have an auto-repeat of that memory. They may not be full-blown, but they 
go through that experience. Uh, mm -hmm. So um, it's uh, but the good the good news about it is that once we isolate, at least with this process, we can isolate where the memory begun and where ends. We can reverse it, and this is the the whole framework of the uh, theater of the mind protocol. Yeah, and I mean, individuals who are listening now are like, wow, did you just say I can, um, you know, reduce or even eradicate my PTSD? Because you said find out where it started and then play with it. I mean, that would be exactly. like uh, someone putting gold in front of someone and being like, here's, you know, a piece of gold. So that's that would be huge. I mean, it will change their lives. I remember the last research that I've done on PTSD. I've actually um, done a few episodes on PTSD myself and, the last research that I did is it's actually impacting people's life dramatically. And it goes to the comorbidity that you said, because it's not just, you know, they, I shouldn't say just, but these individuals have PTSD, but then it goes to drugs. It goes to abuse. It goes to alcohol. It goes to, um, you know, so many other things. It ends up, oh, absolutely. End up being obese, end up getting obesity, end up being heart disease. They're more prone to those things you know, just as it started with PTSD and it ended up being like this domino effect of health. Well, it's a, these are various coping mechanisms yeah. because when this happens, what do we try to do? We try to uh, dull it away with medication or with alcohol or with going on, on a shooting range or whatever. But most of the time that doesn't do the trick. Mm -hmm. You see, the body's always trying to heal itself. Uh, and, but it seems like it's it, what happened when you have a PTSD trauma, it's almost like there's a scratch in the record. So every time, it's almost like I'm trying to bring, re recycle that program, but it cannot. It keeps going back. It keeps being repeated. It's almost like a scratch. I mean, I'm using the record to show you how old I am. For those who are vinyl, it, it, it's your vinyl, and then it's a scratch in the vinyl, and it basically it's on, the, the, the program is unable to complete the cycle. So it's a scratch or it's a short in the system. Um, the, uh, in London and the UK, actually, there are, there are, there are several, some methods that are approaching this. One is called the rewind therapy. And the few clinical studies that have been done there are, uh, proven to have somewhere between 80, 70 to 80% effectiveness and the attenuation of, uh, of symptoms. You might have to do two or three or four or five times, but understand this, that, the same mechanism that goes into getting a phobia from watching Jaws or watching uh, the pandemic and being freaked out is the same mechanism. Uh, you can reverse that mechanism visually. It's almost like an audio-visual engineer. So a lot of the methodology of this framework is almost about playing with images, how we see ourselves and it's double dissociation. And... Um, that's how memories are. For instance, I'll give you a perfect example right now. So I want you guys to think of your perfect um, food, your perfect dessert, okay? The perfect dessert, what you love to have right now, okay? Just think about it for a second, right? You, what is your perfect, you know, and you can think about it, right? So if you take that image, right? And I want, I want you to take that image and now whatever size it is, take that image and in your mind's eye, blow it up until it's the size of, the room, of this room. Of your room. Now, how do you feel about that? About your dessert, right? Feels a little bit different. Or you take that same image, which is whatever it is, and make it tiny until it's just a dot. And then move it far away into the horizon. 
but you no longer feel like having that dessert, don't you? And that's how we, that's how our visual system works. I mean, we do it all the time. Advertisers, for instance, when they're showing you a nice juicy hamburger, I'm not sure how many of you are vegans, but in case you're carnivores, they'll say, oh yeah, they, they plop it right front and center big rather than tiny because they know instinctively we're drawn to images. So PTSD goes two steps beyond that. I mean, PTSD, the VKD uh, uh, process, goes two steps beyond that and decouples the uh, visual experience, from the, the emotional charge from the visual experience. So the result is that the person can remember the memory, but it's not the same. It doesn't have the same kind of like, oh, I'm dying here. Mm -hmm. Now they know it's, it was bad. They don't want to do it again. But now it, it, it allows the hippocampus to, uh, to process the memory and put it in the past rather than staying in the present. It's a fascinating phenomenon. Yeah, I love that. I love that little uh, example they gave us about the dessert. That's amazing. And then throughout the day, you can just imagine how many times you're getting so-called brainwashed, if you are watching oh, TV, by these techniques. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, that's what I tell people. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been telling people from day one, my, my customers or my students, look, you might as well learn this right now because somebody else with a lot of money is doing that to you, whether yes. intentionally or not. And, and and what I see right now worldwide is a systemic uh, process of traumatization. And a lot of the way people are acting doesn't come down to ideology. People say, oh, what else the left? And here in the States, you got the left and the right and the red states and the blue states. No, I, I think it goes far deeper. Is we have been... Many of us, not all, but many of us, enough, being traumatized, and 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 they're running a kind of low-level PTSD um, uh, uh, pattern, and they don't yeah. even know. It. They don't yeah, even and, know. And it. I think the unfortunate thing at the moment is, is okay. Uh, you had to be over age 18, 21, depends what country you're on, to go to the war back in the days, but now this is impacting kids. All families uh, were getting locked up during the pandemic. They were watching the news. They were getting exposed to it. So it's a lower uh, age group being uh, exposed to this trauma. Not that I'm saying back in the days kids didn't get, um, uh, you know, exposed to trauma. Yes, they did, especially when something was out of their control. But I think a lot more younger individuals are being exposed to these PTSD. Oh, absolutely. And and a lot of the technology that's that they're using, um. Uh, everything from Snapchat or Instagram or phones, and it's it's actually uh, coupling their visual system to respond much more to images than to sound. Wow. So, for instance, back in the early 20th century, well, you know, even 19th century, uh, books were the rave. I mean, actually, from the time they were written in the 15th to 16th century, to about it. There is a big thing to have a book. That book was like you're, you went into a virtual reality right there. And at that time, some books really did cause a major impact culturally. Down came out, came the movies. Came Thomas Edison with the first uh, train robbery. And when it was first shown, people were so frightened. They actually ran out of the theater. I mean, because at that time, their visual they would just be the novelty. And their visual system was just beginning to get used to that. 
Now, you try to show, and I've done this, I've actually read the reports of this, that you show the same movie to someone, uh, a Papua New Guinea Indian, which, you know, or someone from South America, a Kiro Indian, and they'll look at it, they won't they'll barely respond. So we've been educated how to respond to images. We've been educated how to respond to the world through the metaphors we use. And the metaphors we're using today are hot pulsed images. Um, did you ever, any, I, mean, I want to bring up another movie called Videodrome. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar. Cronenberg is Canadian, actually. And in Videodrome, apparently there is a, it takes place in the near future where there is a pirate radio station that is sending signals into people's brains and it is literally warping the sense of reality. That's the Videodrome. And I said, we don't have to, we're no longer sci-fi. We are, everything is the Videodrome. You gotta be very careful how much news you watch. I'm being guilty. There are nights that I'm just forging on news and then I pay the price a few hours later. Mm. Bad dreams and so on. But generally, I kind of keep a distance because I realize that at some level, that's also impacting my neurological, um, uh, my, my, my neurology, you know? So there was a time, uh, uh, my God, there was a metaphor called the uh, message is, the medium is the message, right? Very famous. Now is the media, the met, the mess, the metaphor is the medium. So we have to be very careful about these uh, tools that people use. And I think the kids today are much more sensitized to the videos and, and a lot of the ADD that's going around, both with adults and kids, has to do with getting used to fast, fast pulsed images. So they're always like this because the whole world is like that. The, mm. Now with, with the metaverse being inaugurated, who knows where we're heading? So this is why I, I like, I've incorporated the festival thing. That's a, basically a hobby of mine. But because I think we can tell very much about where technology is heading and how it, can, it will impact us as humans. Yeah, wow. So much to talk about. <laughs> so much to uncover out of that uh we could go down the metaverse aspect we could go down uh, uh your, oh, yeah. your hobby there's so many things but i guess uh are we able to just maybe point out to maybe one two or three things as to where the root cause of ptsd uh, is it genetics is it uh, uh is it what we're exposed to is it um our upbringing like what is usually what do you find to be one, two, or three, or a few of the root causes of PTSD? Well, I think that, uh, I don't think genetics plays a major role. I think that um, what we're seeing is, is, is a uh, certain situations are more prone to cause PTSD. Oh, if you're a first responder, if you're a policeman who's been involved in combat, if you're a, the same, a soldier who's combat, uh, these are highly emotional charges that can create PTSD. Now, if a person has a, a network, a support network, after um, they have this experience, chances it might go off on its own. Sometimes it doesn't. It all depends if there is a history of trauma uh, and abuse in their childhood. Um, so some of the major professions are like you know, law enforcement, army, and so on. Um, that's like the first thing. Then we have uh, something more systemic like what we're seeing right now, 
that's a little bit different. That's more a collective kind of uh, 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 panic, fear mongering process. And the way to deal with it is to focus more on uh, on the positive things. I mean, on, on, on one's control over their life. One thing I noticed in the beginning of the pandemic, it's like virtually no talk about um, vitamins or I've been big zinc fanatic for years before they made it a big deal. Zinc and selenium and so on. And so how come they're not talking about it? That's the first thing they should do, get their people feeling empowered. Because if you feel empowered, which means you're in control of your own, to a certain degree of your own body, you're going to feel more positive about whatever comes to you, towards you. But if you feel, oh, my life is, I'm at the mercy of, of this weird virus, then guess what? And you're, you're opening, it's almost like the person is opening themselves to being influenced by the media. So a certain, I would say a certain, uh, 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 a certain intelligence, no, not an intelligence, but a certain attitude, uh, self-reliance is critical. So, and, 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 and expect certain things to happen. So if you're going to get, if you're going to go to war, if you're a soldier, expect you're going to get shot at, maybe die. And, you know, I mean, that's part of the process. Often PTSD happens out of the blue. person just doesn't know what happened. And the next thing, he's having these emotional... It's just a normal... I mean, it's in a, a very abnormal way to react. Or rather, it's a, an, a normal way to react to an abnormal situation. That's the key thing. Certain things we can't control. But at least if you know what to do, the first thing is go to a practitioner right away. Don't wait a year or two and don't... Start drinking or smoking because that's the wrong path. Uh, what I found is those people who sought help after their PTSD within, say, three months are more likely to recover and don't just say, forget about it. I don't care. Because, because you know what? The mind does care and will continue to do this. It always does. And so I would say it's more preventive. Um, almost anyone can have it uh, given the right set of circumstances about how you overcome it so yeah. what the way this process was developed uh, the the algorithm of this process is that we ask people you well you had ptsd so how did you overcome it what did you do and, and we also ask people you have what's going on right now in your mind so what we found are the ones who are, um, who uh, had it, but who had it, but no longer with them. They saw their images behind them. <clears throat> they did some. Uh, they carry out some perceptual processes. And those who still exist with their PTSD, you see, most people don't realize they are. They can be directors of their own mind. Some people have more control over their own images. Remember the old talks about visualization and so on. Well, it's true. Some people can take images and move them around. Uh, others just take a more passive attitude towards life. So their their life is their mind is some kind of uh, receptacle of information, of data, data storage. That's it. But there are others. People will not necessarily go and explain it, but they'll take their minds and move them away in certain um, in certain uh, angles. For instance, Napoleon. Uh, was known to have a very, a very amazing memory. Once was asked, "Well, how do you remember all these fine military details?" 
And he said, well, in my mind, and this is literally, I've created the following. And he went step by step. I have a, uh, a file drawer with various folders. So when I have to remember something, I go inside the, the file drawer, open it up, open each folder, pick it up, look at it. I close the folder. When I'm finished, I close it, put it back, and close it. Some people think, oh, that's just a matter. That's just poetic. No, that's actually what he's doing inside his own mind. And, and I think that the one thing I, I there's one piece about the, the book that I really feel it's, it, it, I was able to take it beyond the siloed um, interpretation of just another therapy is that the practice of using our minds goes beyond just therapy, it goes in, into philosophy and mysticism. And it's like we have inside of us a treasure trove of skills that we can't, they've been telling us since the beginning of time. And most people don't do it. They're just like, oh, I'm bored. I'm going to watch television. That's not a, that person's likely to get PTSD. Because this attitude is a very, the world is just, his mind is just passive, a vessel for receiving information. And the world is just, it's, it's, it's a source of action for the poets, the writers. So um, it's, it's a phenomenon, but how the once you know how the mind works, you can take it beyond dealing with PTSD and creating worlds within worlds. Did you ever watch the movie Inception? Yes, that's the one with uh, John. John was it Nolan? Was it Chris Nolan? Um, with Leonardo DiCaprio. The whole idea is that the, in, in Inception, you have the spy who is going to people's dreams, and each dream has an architecture. And you can go from one dream to the other, to the other, to the other. And I thought, this is beautiful because this is exactly what we do, but also in our own minds, mm -hmm. not just our dreams. And um, some people, if you ask them, how do you organize your life? They'll actually will tell you here, 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 with their images. So it's, it's about building an architecture inside your mind that responds in the right way. So uh, it goes way beyond PTSD, but since PTSD is such a critical problem, we want to start somewhere. And that's why I focus the PTSD. I mean, I spend quite a bit of time on veterans and first responders because they're the ones who are really uh, feeling the brunt of that. Mm. Plus, of course, the general population. You know? Yeah, 100%. What a beautiful way you put it. You know, we can take control of our mind uh, and we, no one needs to control us but ourselves and we can make this amazing world with our mind uh, but still live in reality. <laughs> um, I, I love that, that, you know, uh, everyone just talks about always about visualization, visualization and everyone looks at I'm like, oh, what are you doing that for? And it's like, no, 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 you actually can do things by doing that and by putting uh, emotions attached to it, by putting energy attached to it, not just seeing it. Um, and that's exactly what happens, but the opposite way for PTSD, the action happens and there's the emotion attached to it. So you can right. use that the opposite way to benefit you, visualize and attach an emotion to it and send it off, you know? So I think it's absolutely beautiful. But he, so here in Australia, uh, um, individualized trauma-focused physio-psychotherapy uh, remains the first line for PTSD. That's what they give everyone for the first line uh, with uh, prolonged exposure therapy, cognitive processing therapy, right. and even right. eye movement desensitization. Right. Um, 
still having the strongest base. Uh, what, what, and then what they move on to is uh, pharma pharmacotherapy, which you know uh, includes uh, antidepressants and so forth. What are your thoughts on that? Can, should they work together? Can they work together? Is one uh, superior than the other in according to your experience? Okay, so the first tool, uh, the first tool you mentioned, which is exposure and cognitive. All right, so exposure. The problem with exposure, you're re-exposing the person to the trauma, but on a much smaller scale. So with vets, thirty percent of them don't come back. They just don't. Say, I lived through hell once. I'm not going back. And who, who can blame them? So exposure therapy has some serious limitations. Now, cognitive behavioral therapy, although my work with the other uh, challenges, it's kind of tough because you're essentially asking the higher cortical center to reach down into the midbrain where the problem lies and fix it. So CBT, mm, it, it hasn't had, a, 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 I think the effectiveness rate is somewhere 30 to 40%. Now, EMDR, I got a little story to tell you about EMDR. The Francine Shapiro was uh, a, uh, who's developed it, uh, actually was used to work for uh, one of the developers of NLP, John Grinder. By the way, I think John Grinder is an, lives in Australia. And for those who want to, uh, he's a good guy. I mean, he's like one of the co-developers. Uh, John Grinder, and she, then a few years later, she claims, quote unquote, to have developed EMDR by just watching her own eyes move up. Maybe she did. Maybe she was partially influenced by John Grinder. Who knows? Uh, EMDR works, but what I've noticed, <clears throat> excuse me, is that in EMDR, you still get the trauma coming back. Mm. And you still get some of the um, unpleasant effects, uh, but not as much as uh, exposure therapy. So it, it works, but it's it, in some people it works better than others. <clears throat> Excuse me. The good thing about this process, <coughs> the thing about this process is that um, there is the, the person, as long as you maintain. The, your client a safe space, he'll run the film and he won't feel that kind of traumatic um, reaction. So I get a, I get a sense that it, this this process is easier to learn and apply than EMDR, which really doesn't require a lot more supervision. As long as you tell the person, okay, I'm going to run you the process very quickly right now. It's very easy. I may not do it one by one, but essentially you go inside a movie theater you take a seat. Imagine there is this big movie you're about to watch, which actually you later find out is the experience of, of first having PTSD. Now you're going to be watching. You imagine you're floating where you watch. You're at the projection booth. You're watching yourself watch that movie. Okay, and never you at the projection booth are going to be watching the movie. Are going to be watching yourself watch the movie. So you're watching yourself have that experience. So this. One, this this process is part part A of the process. Decouples the charge. Like for instance, I'll give you an example. See yourself doing something versus doing it yourself. It's a very different experience. So we first had the person run very quickly the experience from beginning to end, almost like that watching a film at three times the speed. Then stop. And then I I have them float from the projection booth. To that same self in the um, theater, and then merge with the 
movie with the, the the last piece of the movie being shown and then run it backwards. So essentially what you're doing is a kind of visual gymnastics that that kind of like removes the charge. You know, it's um and 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 it's really it's it's outstanding. I mean the first time I did it I said no I can't happen that fast. <laughs> it's gotta I said there's gotta be some kind of catch. And yet what I've noticed time and time and time again there is a significant drop and emotion, and, you know, significant. The person feels much better. Mm. You know, I, I had a, uh, a, a, a gentleman who runs a, uh, a company, multi-million dollar company. And, uh, he came to me, he it was actually the same workshop where I met the woman who had phobia, fear of the of water going of swimming. So he said, listen, I have some problems. Said, what is it? Well, I wake up at two in the morning, my cheeks are wet, I soaked and wet. And I said, Oh, the way he described it, I said, man, this, this could be tough. I said to myself, okay, let's have a meeting. So I went and sat with him and um, he told me what happened. So I ran the process a couple times. And uh, after the process felt a little bit like disoriented because that's normally what happens. It's like, wow, it's like you're going up, it's like you're going through a roller coaster ride, a visual roller coaster ride. You feel like your body. Okay. All right. Tell me. Let's check. Let's touch base next week. The following week, he told me, "Well, uh, I'm still waking up, but I'm able to sleep a little bit better." Okay, let's do the pro let's do the process again. After the third session, he was now able to get four or five hours of sleep, and he would no longer wet the these sheets. He was trembling. He had so much PTSD that his body would start that that the sheets would be all soaked and wet from that. And then uh, the funny thing about it is that for, it had reached a point that whenever anybody, and he ran this big company, he was the sole owner, any of his employees uh, challenged him on something, instead of reacting, he would actually have to leave the company, walk around the block four or five times, because he couldn't deal with any kind of emotional confrontation. So afterwards, he asked me, well, I feel very much better. Can you help me, you know, with my employees? And when he went back, he told me that his employees know you're, you're you're not the same person because now he, he was able to confront them and, he, and then I helped them with some assertive assertiveness training as well. So that's great. I mean, the greatest thing is the greatest joy is when I work with my patients. It's and many of them come back and say, "Yeah, I feel much better." It's it, it's a uh, I really like the process and it, it helped me a lot. And now I want to follow up a year, two years later. Or so he calls me back again. What happens? He's feeling pretty well, and then he's he lived on a one one lane street. Well, now right prior to the during the pandemic, decided to make that a two lane street. So he's walking out of the street. Doesn't he thinks it's one lane? Bang! Gets hit by a car from the other side. Guess what happens? Now his PTSD is back. So I helped him again with that. So it's like anything. It's like There'll be triggers, and we're yeah. living in a very uh, in a world that can be very uh, unpredictable at times. And uh, so be the key is what are you going to do when it happens? You recognize the symptoms, and they last more than a month, two weeks to a month. Then I would say uh, they'd be on the lookout for something. If it's only a few days, you know, but if it's like uh, thirty days and no sleep, insomnia, restless tremors, then something is happening. But the key is what to do, what to do, where to go. Because if it's, 
the options are, well, we're going to re-expose you to the original. <laughs> I'm not dealing with that. Or uh, we're just going to talk about it. Let's figure out the belief system ain't going to happen. The third one is EMDR, which depends on the practitioner. You might get a good one, get the results, or you might get one that is not so well trained. So um, I feel this process, this is this is, this definitely represents a significant contribution and addition to powerful therapies that don't require re-experiencing of the trauma, which is the key thing. You see, you, don't really, you have experienced, and this applies also to sexual assault, to abuse. It's not just going to war. So generally, the way it works is that men get their PTSD from what these activities and the women from sexual assault and abuse. Both have been abused. So the key is that the result is that we need to find a way that we can show them. You can sit down and we'll teach you. It's very frustrating because when I first heard of, well, I used this technique was a long time ago. So, well, everybody's going to learn about it. The world's going to get much better. We'll put this behind us. And I said, 20 years later, I said, we're still dealing with exposure therapy? Oh, my God. We're living in the Stone Age here, you know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, 100%, 100%. I mean, look, yeah, um, yeah, that's what, that, that's the first treatment here in Australia for PTSD. If someone that gets diagnosed with it, uh, it's it's those types of um, treatments that they do use. And then and then they look at, or in combination, they look at giving antidepressants, um, which which people stay on for forever. months, years, for a long time, forever. Yeah. yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not a plan to get off. It's literally uh, a plan of, it's a prescription, uh, a subscription. You stay on it um, until you more like a subscription. Yes, it sounds very much like what's going on here with other things. So yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a, uh, you know, there, there, there are a variety of tools that we can avail ourselves to really make ourselves healthier and better. The mind wants to get better. Yeah, let's go through them. Tell us, tell us a few of those tools. Tell us what someone um, may be able to do if, if, if you know, if they do have PTSD. I guess the first thing, like you said, is go see a practitioner that's able to assist you. Someone that you trust. You need to have that trust with them, right? Correct. Exactly. Find out about someone who is familiar with uh, rewind therapy or um, uh, another way is a BKD process, an NLP practitioner. But make sure you, you get, unfortunately, like, like, like chiropractors. I'm not sure if you've ever been to one. Some of them are lousy. Some of them are like magicians. It really depends who you go to. So you, the best bet is go for someone who's been qualified. So I know in Australia, they got John Grinder, who's a co-developer. And he, if you follow that pedigree, I'm sure these people are really, really good. Or people that have been trained with John Grinder. Because there are too many people out there that are hanging up uh, shingle and say, oh, yes, I'm this, I'm that, I, I, I do EMDR, I do, and they do nothing. Actually, make matters worse. Yeah. It's important to find that the person is a, a certified practitioner by the co-developers of NLP, some other system, you know, it's critical. You know who, who you're going to go to before you go there. Because there are a lot of charismatic people out there, they, they're like, you know, uh, snake oil salesmen, very, you know, very glittery, big teeth, smiling, and they don't know anything because I've seen them. I know them how they work. And there are those who are very quiet, but they're like they they're perfect. They just you go and you feel much better. And so it's, it's it's important to don't judge by appearances. You gotta go by someone who really knows what they're doing and have many years of doing it. I've had I work with other uh, practitioners 
one guy was trained by another school. I told him, have you done work with PTSD? He said, uh, no, I really have never worked well. And he studied a lot of the same things I studied. So a person has to have worked with trauma, uh, whether it be the rewind therapy or BKD process or any of these um, uh, cognitive process, but not CBT. I wouldn't, I think CBT is just not, not going to do it for a lot of people, 30 to 40%. Uh, the key thing is whatever you do, the person should give you hope. The therapist should give you hope and should give you, empower you so you can start doing it yourself. Remember at the end of the day, we really need to pick up our own cross every day and do what we need to do. We can't just rely on a therapist like, oh, okay, my fix me up. And oh, well, I've seen my therapist for like five years and I feel, begin to feel a little bit better. If you can't get, if you cannot feel better after five sessions, just fire your therapist. I'm sorry. You're, you're turning your therapist into a friend. Now, it's a very expensive friend then, you know? But it's, it's basically fire that therapist. I'm sorry. And that's what I told my clients. I said, listen, I'm not going to be with you forever. Not even six months or three months. Five sessions. That's it. I mean, maybe we'll make it 10, but it's not like we're going to go on. And sure enough, I don't think I've had any clients that lasted more than 10 sessions. They already yeah. had their expertise. Because when you move the responsibility from the therapist back to the client, you know, I got to do, I got to own my own life. So going back to the original idea of those who are more self-reliant and more active versus passive are less likely to get PTSD or if they get it, they won't, re they'll recover much faster. And those who are totally passive, please fix me, fix me, fix me. You know? Uh, mm -hmm. So take control. Uh, you have to take control of your own healing and on your own health and the whole process. We we, we got to understand is that we're living in a very whole world, a very toxic environment, very toxic. So I would say everyone, even if they don't have PTSD, that they should at least take a meditation, a meditation, or a, a practice they do every day to just calm themselves, to center themselves, so they can ground themselves. Well, go to the, go to, you guys have a lot of, you have a lot of parks, don't you? I mean, a lot of treatment. Uh, yeah, go there. Be one with nature. Walk barefoot, whatever. But do it regularly because this is no joke. This is key thing. It's prevention. Mm -hmm. You're going to be you're developing a kind of a constitution at that point that will be a little bit stronger than someone who's fragile, that any little thing will just, they all fall apart. Um, but the PTSD, yes, I would, I would go ahead and seek qualified treatment. There are treatments more than, there are better treatments than exposure therapy. I mean, that's 50 years ago. I mean, we don't need to do that anymore. I'm sorry. We don't need to do that. The problem is a lot of practitioners and they are afraid. You see, we think of these therapists or counselors as being like sponges of information. No, a lot of them are wedded to one technique. And let's look at the business end of it. They want the person to come back for more than five sessions. Because they, that's their client. That's their business. I mean, why would you want to get rid of, help your patient get rid of their problem after one session or two? You know? And the VA hospital is terrible. A lot of the VA hospitals in the U.S., many of them are uh, run by unqualified or barely qualified people, social workers who have never had this kind of training. This is the kind of training anyone can get at, at any level. You don't have to be a psychiatrist. You just got to be uh, pay attention to what's happening in front of you so the person knows that you're with them, not 
you're far away. The most important thing with with any therapeutic relationship is the field that you develop with that sense of trust. Mm. And, 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 and from there, you, we can apply these various techniques. Uh, a lot of my students are a little bit too eager to apply their, their techniques. And they say, no, no, before you even apply, do any of this. You need to develop a strong field between you and your client of trust and support. This is not about techniques. This is about creating that field where the best can come out, where they can step out of their very guarded selves into a place, a sacred place where they can now work with you. And then that's when they open themselves up to the technique. Because one thing about this technique, it requires that you run the process yourself. Not, uh, I can guide you along, but I cannot make you make that image bigger or smaller. You gotta do it yourself. So there is a compliance factor. And now oh, I'm just gonna go along with it so I can get out of get out of this crazy person who will move on. No. You got to make sure the person is really doing that. So if you're running a movie very quickly, and and one of the things to look out for is they run the movie very fast. If their, if their neck jerks very quick backwards, so like that, they're actually doing it. So I always ask my clients, what step are you? Are you here? Are you here? Are you here? So I can monitor their internal. I cannot go inside their mind and see, okay, you're at the project. Go, go. <laughs> you can't do it. There is a compliance factor. And... Um, so, and that's critical. That's important. So that's why rapport is essential. Trust. Do what I'm saying. This sounds crazy, but it's going to help you. I mean, mm-hmm. I actually, in the book, I, I wrote a, uh, uh, I wrote a play, which I showed at the Psychedelic Festival three years ago. And what I've noticed after, the play was essentially a reenactment of a session I had with a, with a, with a vet. And it was almost like word by word. And what I've noticed after the, after the uh, play, when, when I ran, actually, I played a therapist. That was a very easy role for me. Uh, <clears throat> people came and he said, you know, I feel better about certain things all of a sudden. So I want to start wondering, well, what's going on here? What other mechanism have I overlooked? You know, they saw a play of me doing the BKD process with a vet actor, but and then the emails keep coming back. They come back. So it occurred to me that perhaps during the play, those who identified with lead, with the veteran, identify meaning like they are the veteran, ran that process themselves with th- some things they've done in their own lives. And the result was they felt much better. Wow. You know? You know? Yeah, I mean, this when you, when you watch a movie, you identify with a character. Are you actually going through his journey, not just seeing a movie? And if it's a really good movie, not just visual effects and explosions, and uh, but really, you are in his, in his world, in her world, and you're going through her journey. So whatever they're going through, you're going through too, obviously through different filters. That's the beauty of uh, storytelling is not about entertainment. I mean, people don't, don't realize that storytelling, and it's something going back thousands of years, is a healing process. We tell stories not just to love it, but to heal each other. Because as you listen into the character in the story, you become the character briefly. Why? That's why movies are so good, right? That's why stories are so good. You become that. And all of a sudden, you feel a sense of expansion. 
And it has to do with the journey that you have taken for that 90 minutes or that two hours or whatever you're reading a book with the character. You become the character. And you're um, so right. You're so right. You know, we've told stories and even here in Australia, the Aborigines, they have this thing called story time. And all right. of that is part of healing, isn't it? Books, is it? stories, healing, right? Right. The, the story is about running our own minds through the story. The stories are essentially metaphors, uh, bits and pieces of elements that we're in our own mind. We're adding our own personal history. So, yeah, well, I remember when I was a kid too, as I'm watching that movie, I went through some trials and, and my father was this or that. And, and now, yeah, I can really, I can identify is the story. So where the story differs from the play, in my case, that the play incorporates the technique as well. So I'm not just telling them, uh, I'm not, it's not just a feel-good story or or not so, if it's an anti-hero story, but it's about a specific, it's a therapeutic story. So a friend of mine from Greece told me that Back in the day, in uh, there was a a, a a town called Epidaurus that it was on 300 BC, where it was known for festivals for healing, and they offer stories, and the stories were designed specifically for people to heal and to feel better. They were not entertaining. It was not about feeling good. It's about okay, I got this. This is your journey. I'm gonna make it into a story, and I'm gonna tell everybody because at the end of the day. We are more alike than 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 it's a, this this alike more than different. Our journey is very similar. We run into a lot of the same challenges. This is why you call the hero's journey. Well, you know, uh, Joseph Campbell talks about that. But um, so the 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 whole idea is to take and this is something that troubled me. Is this the number of PTSD uh, cases is just rising worldwide? Uh, I mean, I was talking to this uh, psychiatrist from the uh, John Hopkins uh, train, uh, and she said that uh, she suspects like 20% of the U.S. has probably some sort of PTSD. So I was, you know, and, and so it's a worldwide phenomenon, and I don't think there are enough therapists or psychologists out there to help everybody. And, you know, I, I kind of laugh when I read about the MDMA clinical trials. Oh, well, you know, we're going to testing 322 people on MDMA. Well, that's fine for the 322. But what about the millions? And I don't envision a world where everybody will be going to their MDMA clinic. That would be mm. it's kind of a scary, weird world. Well, get your MDMA shot or get your MDMA uh, because that's complicated. Yeah, MDMA. I read that study. I read that study. I did an actual podcast on that study for PTSD and and MDMA. And it's interesting. Look, the results look amazing. But then I think and I go, it, how this is my my strain of thought is how is that different to antidepressants? I know there's a difference, but it's still an external thing that we're waiting for to put in us instead of us right. taking control and charge of ourselves. Right? Exactly. Exactly. And and it, exactly. I mean, it's it is. Some there's some there's some suggestion that it's a there's an explosion of serotonin the result of the experience and then the person will is able to now take that experience it kind of neutralizes the memory the the, the negative charge but the actual mechanism is still relatively unknown you know mm -hmm. this this step by step and there are some big pharma companies uh, or uh, psychedelic startups out there that are actually to re want to remove the psychedelic effects and just keep the 
uh, I guess the antidepressants or whatever. Similar to what they want cannabis, yeah. Yeah, they want to remove all the fun, right? They want to remove anything that's... <laughs> and you say, oh, can I give you this pill, the pill, and that's it. Anything that will open you up to have more visual effects and actually deal with no. things. <laughs> no, yeah, well, people don't want any mind-altering experiences. But, you yeah. know, you guys have a, a, the, the Aborigines to talk about their dream time and all that. And there's a, a, a very rich world that awaits anyone who wants to explore it. Now, what I, my goal is to open that world to people through film, through music, through cinema, even through psychedelics. Everybody's called for a specific mission. But uh, I don't think there's not one cure that fits all. And that's mm. the idea of MDMA. Well, uh, we got to still, what we have to do, and this is going to be a challenge because most of the media is just so bent on, on pushing this very toxic, negative stuff. Very little of the positive. No wonder people are, are, are like freaking out, you know? Uh, but if the media decided tomorrow, okay, we're going to create stories or vehicles for healing, where we are embedding uh, positive transformational techniques within that, I think you would see a lot more positivity coming out, more healthier people, but uh, at least not the mainstream media. I mean, yeah. that's, that's, so we are, uh, I mean, that's why I created Lux Eterna, which stands for Eternal Light. Uh, we, we created that with the idea to um, develop um, processes that uh, can be shown publicly that can help people and uh, reconnect. That's uh, amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a slow moving because you know, essentially we're trying to work against the, uh, a paradigm that has been with us for <laughs> quite, some, uh, quite some time. And um, But I do feel, yeah, we, but we do feel it's important because we really want to reach out and help others, especially share spread the message that these things exist. Mm. You know, and, yeah. uh, Cause people feel after stuck. I mean, if someone's had, let's say PTSD for 12 years, 10 years, nothing has changed all- in those 10, 12 years. So they've kind of maybe even given up and they're like, you know what? I'm going to stay on antidepressants. I'm going to have my panic attacks. Every time something happens, I'm going to deal with it. And it's just my life. A lot of people, maybe I feel are at that stage where they've just accepted it. Um, you know, yeah, absolutely. For instance, did you know that a panic attack, there are, there are various types of panic attack, but there's a the simplest one is studies have shown that those people who have panic attacks, their left brain is acting, working like crazy, super, and their right brain is asleep. The one thing that I was taught and I've done it because I, you know, is to grab the tennis ball and just throw it from left to right. That kind of a kinesiology exercise. And after a short while, the panic should subdued and it should be stabilized in a more normal emotion because essentially you're getting both brains to work. At synchro- you're essentially synchronizing left-right brain. So a lot has to do with uh, brain lateralization. A lot of our problems and, and, and concerns and challenges and it's the left brain. The left brain is, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the works of uh, Ian Gilchrist. This is a psychiatrist from, um, uh, from the UK. He's writing a book called The Master and His Emissary. And the idea is that the left brain has essentially taken over. The right brain kind of does a little bit here and there, but it's essentially the brain running, running the show. You know? And that has caused a lot of the problems that we have in this culture have to do with that imbalance. And pa- things like panic disorders, trauma, PTSD, is the, even schizophrenia have to do with the, the left brain or uh, parts of the left brain 
working overtime. Whereas the right brain is cool. I mean, basically, yeah, the right brain is much more spiritual, much more, it sees the big picture. Whereas the left brain is all like trying to control freak. And, <laughs> and that's why all these Eastern traditions that tell you meditate, relax, not because it's just they, they want to be cool, but because by doing so, you're, sh you're slowing down the left brain. You're allowing the right brain to come up. I mean, I remember I had an accident three years ago where I was in Europe and I broke my leg. And I was one of those who never meditated. You know, I heard about it. I said, yeah, right. I do hypnosis, but meditation, nah, it's not for me. But I had a lot of time on my hands. I spent, you know, while, while recovering from the operation. And I got to tell you, after I've done this is like two and a half years now of meditation, it really changed me a lot. You know, it's much more relaxed than I used to be. And I, and that's the good thing about a practice. It doesn't have to be meditation. It could be yoga. It could be uh, qigong. It could be just dancing. But something you do every day that that grounds you because there's so much out there that is just uh, trying to grab, pull your attention away from your center towards them. There and, is, and there is so much out there. But there's one question that I wanted to ask you uh, before we, you know, close off in a way. Uh, it's about virtual reality. You said metaverse. You mentioned it, right? Metaverse, um, yeah. yeah. So, how do you see or how do you feel that the latest technology uh, shaped the structure of reality, specifically concerning our approach to everyday life? Right. So tell me a little bit about how you think uh, virtual reality applications may be able to assist with PTSD, or are they even able to assist with that? Where do you see that going? Well, I think uh, this is something that we're actually doing with our company. We've been thinking of. Uh, applying some of these uh, um, these strategies within a virtual reality framework. Um, creating avatars and the avatar, you see the avatar. And, and it's a little bit, uh, it, it's more, certainly might, we, gotta, we would need to make it a lot more interactive and a lot more engaging. But yes, I do think for virtual reality and um, when done the right way, see, the technology is a double-edged sword. So virtual yes. reality, yes, when we've done the right way, can open you can open the person. Uh, give you an example. When glasses were first developed, correction, corrective glasses, which is to correct your eyesight, to correct them. But they're not doing that anymore. Now you're wear one until your eyesight is shot, and they give you another one that's even stronger and it's stronger. Because there is where's the profit mode if I'm just gonna be your glasses, glasses here, and that's it. You never see me again. I'm going to be broke real soon. So that's how a lot of things work. So the technology can help us if we find a way to, it, it, it help us develop our own personal power, our own personal senses, not to replace it. Because then you're disempowering the person. Oh my God, I see people in the middle of New York, in the middle of Times Square on their Google Maps. And I said, that's odd, because don't you realize that in New York is, you got 41st Street, 42nd, 43rd, 3rd Avenue. It's so very easy to get around this town versus, let's say, uh, Miami, which I've been to, and it's, it's a nightmare, you know. And yet they are using the technology for everything. And that's, why I think, the misuse of technology. So, yes, to answer your question, virtual reality can be very effective. Um, meta, unfortunately, the metaverse will not be done for therapy. I doubt it will be done for more, more entertainment and keeping us glued to this a, a secondary matrix. 
keeping the, gla- uh, the glasses prescription going, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they want us glued there, so we, we're there all the time. We're in the metaverse all the time. And yeah. I don't, you know, I don't, you know, uh, there's a film that came out uh, in early 20th century, no, um, yeah, around 20, 2001, 21st century, called 1999, called uh, Strange Days with uh, Ralph Fine, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Ralph Fine, is ca- directed by Catherine Bigelow. And it's, it's basically that world where people are just glued to the virtual reality. And um, it's, it's it can be very troubling. So if the, the money goes, that's where you're going to have all the attention. Uh, I don't think there's much money in therapy. You know, and they don't want to really focus too much on that. I mean, they want to do it. It's a word of mouth. Oh, yeah, social services. But they'd rather make money on uh, points and likes and Snapchat and all that. So... Yeah, but yeah. it only takes a few people to make an example to really say, uh, say "Listen, we're doing this. This is our goal." And, and eventually, yeah, I mean, you can, I guess, you can assist someone with you being where you are. For example, there's someone in Australia that's like, "Wow, I would love to work with Daniel." They, if possible, sometime like in the future, maybe they'll be able to put on those glasses and they'll be able to work with you uh, or, or follow your instructions to make it easier to work through instead of having to fly all the way to New York to come see you or you coming to Australia. I guess there is that aspect of it too, because some individuals, like you said, going back to what you said, they have PTSD, they're not as visual as other individuals. They're more hands-on. So I guess that kind of flows into effect there. Yeah. I mean, we can all, I mean, right now I'm doing with some people through Zoom. So yeah. I have many clients that I meet on Zoom. I never met them face to face on Zoom, and we do a lot of the same services. Not as good as live. There's something special about doing a live interaction. As with the energy transaction, I'm not sure what it is, but Zoom is, is you know that's the only the best way we can do it. So be it. A virtual reality is the next step, where uh, the instructions will be given by an AI. It says, please put on your headset. <laughs> <laughs> Close your eyes and imagine that, hey, it's already happening. Uh, there is actually a, mo- uh, a, mo- a company called uh, therapy.com or yeah, talk.com, I think, which is how uh, it got into some problems because this information is private and it got into someone else's hands. But essentially, you're interacting with an AI. You're asking them using uh, CBT. Uh, so you'll have, yes, oh, I'm feeling depressed. So the AI will respond to you, how are you feeling depressed today? What are examples wow. of it? And then this is an AI that's already been programmed to give you back the information. And uh, unfortunately, when it's in the hands of business types, all they're thinking about the profit motive. So mm-hmm. it got into the hands of someone else and thousands of names were revealed. I don't think it was a company. I think it was another company. But I'm not sure. Yeah. One of these companies had a problem. And uh, so the end result was loss of trust. But you know what? People are more interested these days. If there was a new result, is they're more open to dealing with ther- with AI systems. Your life therapist. And what that tells me is that these AI, a lot of these therapists are pretty lousy, because you should not prefer an AI to a therapist. I mean, at least an AI is neutral on judging. You get a sense, and I've been here because I'm actually a member of various support groups, panic support groups here in New York. And people say, oh, yeah, my therapist said this. And apparently a lot of brutal therapists out there. They're not so, so nice. You know? And they, their training has been very, they have to do some therapy themselves. That's all I got to say. 
Yeah, 100%. What wonderful. Um, so, look, to wrap up the interview, because I really appreciate your time, Daniel. Uh, thank you so much. And the audience is like, wow, this is such amazing information. Um, two, last two questions, one of them being uh, three practical tips to give anyone to assist them in either reducing or overcoming PTSD. What would they be uh, in summary of today's uh, podcast? All right, two, uh, three practical. You mean if they have PTSD? Yes, correct. Well, what what I would recommend is uh, at this stage, as soon as they find out they have PTSD, seek a qualified practitioner. Uh, I mean, not spe- you know, it can be PTSD. Oh, specifically, are these techniques that I've outlined? Um, doing it yourself can can be very tricky. Now, it is possible. But it, it does require a certain amount of, um, con- essentially the way it works is, is very simple. The person has to find, if the person is a meditator or, or he's found a, gr- a sacred space inside themselves, that's critical. If they have that already, like find your, find your sanctuary, find your space. Mm-hmm. Uh, my space is in my heart. Okay. I want, so essentially what I tell people with anxiety, or early PTSD is find your sanctuary. Say my is my heart. Okay, here. Good. Now find where in your body do you feel the anxiety. And before let's step back. Find your time to make sure you have all the resources, all your spirit guides, your your creator, whoever you want to call that will help you on this journey. It's not a shamanic trip. It sounds like a shamanic trip, but it's not. But you put them over here. You ask your creator, um, yeah, or any other assistance to help you on your journey and really connect surrender to that then once you have that and it's glowing you feel it you feel it powerful then right you ask yourself what is where do i feel the anxiety generally it'll be in a different part of the body like belly or, or maybe they'll feel their their, their anxiety in the, yeah they feel their, their anxiety in their belly and their and then at that point connect dots and stay there and then ex- ex- see, feel, um, see, uh, uh, or experience a, a stream of, of love or compassion or connection coming from your heart to your belly. And, and the person has to stay with that emotion. And there'll be some sadness, some all sorts of things, but stay there because essentially you're doing your closing the circuit. Remember when I said PTSD is about opening the circuit, it's been short circuit, you're closing it again. And, and that creates a sense of balance. It's about balancing our energies. Because most of the time, our anxiety and early PTSD is in one part of our body. It's uh, maybe around the uh, around, like around the diaphragm area. So you got to feel that. Okay, it's here. My, my, my anxiety is here. Then you got to find another spot in your body where you feel when, moments where you feel really good about yourself. And, and again, connect the dots. And, and I found that that really is useful. Uh, in dealing with some early, uh, some anxiety issues, insomnia, can't sleep, what's going on. Generally, what I tell my clients is something in, inside you is waking up. And these are the, this is the way it's communicating. It may not be the ideal, right? Like pain and suffering is not good, but that's the way it's communicating. And generally, it's a part of them that, needs, that is neglected and needs to be reabsorbed by you as an adult self. And I sort of help them out in the process. So um, that's one thing. They have panic attacks. I mentioned the tennis ball. Flip it. 
back and forth for like five, ten minutes. Don't pass it. Don't go like this. That's not throwing. <laughs> Actually, so I don't think I have a tennis ball around here. But what I would say is like, here's my glasses, right? So I go like this. Back and forth. Back and forth. Back and forth. And I just look straight ahead. And after about five or ten minutes, it should be, uh, it should help me significantly. Uh, and the third technique is more of a preventive measure, which is something they should they need to meditate. They should meditate or do a practice, a yoga practice, when they wake up in the morning or sometimes at the same time every morning. Same time. Not like, oh, I'm going to wake up and do the yoga today at, at 9 and tomorrow at 3, you know, same time. Body likes routines. Um, what are the things? Um, I would also say, in general, and it's not a, it's not a bad idea to watch more comedies. Um, be, uh, Bernie Siegel, who wrote uh, what's it called, Mind and Miracles, said he, he was diagnosed with cancer, and then he he decided, well, I'm just gonna watch a movie, and he, he's you know started watching endless reruns of the Three Stooges for like <laughs> six months, and afterwards the cancer is gone. So you laugh, laughter is the best way because it releases endorphins and. And it releases some natural healing, healing uh, substances. But if the person is, you know, these are good things to do on a regular basis. Um, I would say that's like the, the, the one thing. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's powerful. If a person has some hardcore PTSD, then I would really ha advise them to seek someone who can help them. But the good thing about it, again, I want to emphasize that they know what they're doing. They'll feel better after that session, at least two. They won't have to wait 30, 5, 10, 15. They won't have to wait a year. One or two sessions. That's it. They know what they're doing. So yeah. And there's hope There's hope out there for them. I mean, after individuals just listen to this podcast, Daniel, uh, they've, they've, it's opened up their mind where they're like, wow, there is actually something I or someone that they know uh, they're able to do for their PTSD or, you know, even after listening to this podcast for some people who don't even have it, they're able to support it out in others and be like, there is hope. And, and be able to support that person because whoever is around their life, you said at the start, support is absolutely key. And, and, and having that and having that community feel and not feeling lonely because we know loneliness is one of the biggest killers in the world. So having that support around them, those three those three uh, uh, practical tips that you provided us with. Um, so I guess everyone just, even if you don't have PTSD uh, or, or panic attacks, go buy a ball. If you're feeling emotional or something, do the juggling of that <laughs> that tennis ball. I oh, love yeah. that. Kinesiology. Any can just look pick up books on kinesiology. It doesn't have to be a ball. It could just be like this, going like this right here, or you're crossing your legs, or you do all kinds of odd because that essentially to resynchronizes left-right brain hemispheric co coordination. I work with a woman who had a young woman at that too in her late thirties, and she got she came up with a she had left brain aphasia. So luckily, it was her. Left brain, not her right brain. So left, so she could she could barely put certain words together. But I worked with her for a few sessions, and it was remarkable seeing her improvement just with these basic, well, you know, moving back and forth. Remember, you're working with the brain, and the brain likes to resynchronize. So once you're in in that flow, those moments, those peak experiences that we all have on occasion are when the right brain and the left brain are are in synchrony. They're really, you know, in tandem, working together. And that's what we need to go for. Uh, so spiritual practices, meditation, um, it, it, it helps to be, you know, at the end of the day, you need to have a belief in a power higher, higher than yourself. 
you know, without being preachy about it. It's very critical because you can always surrender yourself to that power. It's this, and then allow the healing to take place. But if, if you don't, and a lot of people who don't have that so mentioned this reality, that's allow the right brain to do their work. So by surrendering yourself to a higher power, the right brain gets the work done for them. So I, it, it's, I would say yes. I, I, I would say um, there's hope for those guys, those people out there. There's hope. Get yourself John Grinder, Richard Bandler. These are the two co-creators of NLP. But make sure that these people are certified practitioners. They don't, they're not just uh, someone who decided to hang up a shingle and say, "Hey, I'm I'm great." No, no, no. That's be careful. But hope is there, and I've seen it. I've seen it hundreds of times with people who have PTSD, had anxiety, had phobias, had trauma, and and one step at a time. And and and, and you know, at the end of the day, we just have to develop that sense of Fortitude. I says, okay, not gonna be another ten years, and maybe in a week or two, I feel much better. And uh, slowly but surely, we all develop a kind of resilience that we so much need to do in this in this world. So, yeah, I love that. What what a great way to end today's podcast, Daniel. Thank you so much. The information that you provided us today with information about PTSD, anxiety attack, trauma, and so forth has been invaluable. I really do appreciate it. Uh, in the show notes, I'll put a link to your book. I'll put a link to individuals how they're able to contact you if they want to work with you um, and any information that you may believe is valuable. I'll put it all in the show notes. So I wanted to say thank you. Thank you so much for joining us yeah. on the Natural Health Podcast, Daniel. Thank you, Mayela. Thank you for you joining us. Day. Thank Bye-bye. you. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us at the Natural Health Podcast. And remember, the missing link between failure and success is your health. Content and information provided here is opinion of Mahela Raguse and is for information purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. It is not intended to provide medical advice or take the place of medical advice or any current treatment you're undertaking. Consult your own medical professionals for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the Natural Health Podcast. It is advised that you consult your doctor or healthcare professional in relation to any health concerns you may be having. Mahela Raguse does not take responsibility for any health consequences which occur from a person listening, viewing, or reading this content. And in a Circumstances shall the Natural Podcast, Mahela Raguse, any guests or contributors to the Natural Podcast, or any employees, associates, or affiliates of Mahela Raguse be responsible for damages arising from the information provided on the Natural Podcast. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical conditions in either yourself or others. Please note if you're taking prescription, do not stop your medication or start a new protocol, including but not limited to supplements diet lifestyle changes without consulting a doctor or healthcare professional. If you or any person has a medical concern, you should consult with your healthcare provider or seek other professional medical advice. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something that you have read or heard on the natural podcast or in any link materials. If you think you may have a medical emergency, call your doctor or emergency services immediately. Neither Mahela Raguse nor the publisher of this contact takes responsibility for the possible health consequences of any person or persons reading or listening or following the information in educational content.